You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Hello, CJ. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me today. I am very thankful for having you on here because you've got a very um, vulnerable, raw, true story that you're going to share with us, um, which brings a whole new light and understanding to what can happen postpartum with women. We're starting to get a better understanding of what postpartum depression is, but we don't know as much about postpartum psychosis. And this is what we're going to chat to you about today to get a better understanding. But before we go there, I want you to maybe just set up a little bit for the listeners so they know what your life was like before you had a bub and and what your pregnancy was really like. Um, so I guess life before having a baby was pretty, pretty amazing. I've never, ever really experienced any mental health. Um, was working in a restaurant. Um, everything was great. Had a, you know, an amazing husband, um, fell pregnant really easily, which I was so very blessed for because I know so many women do struggle with, um, fertility issues. Um, and then the pregnancy was amazing to be honest with you. Some people, when I say this, they're like, what? I'm like, I felt so sexy in my pregnancy. Like it was a dream. Like apart from the obviously like normal pains and groans and my feet swelled up, I actually had the best pregnancy. It was incredible. Um, so yeah, it was, it was crazy what happened after. Cause I was just, just love life being pregnant. Yeah. There was nothing major stand out and, um, your mental health and everything was all good. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. We um, often hear that um, there's a thing called baby blues that can kick in after people have given birth, um, and that usually comes in around day two, three, four maybe. Um, And I often heard women joke about this period of time as, oh, you know, I just um, cried at the drop of a hat or something happened and it was just, you know, all these little emotions that bubbled up. And then for for a lot of women it goes away. this obviously is different for a diff- every different woman. So some people that can continue down into your postnatal depression quite possibly. Um, other women don't even get anything at that time. Um, what happened for you on day two? Uh, day two um, was very, I do remember it so clearly. Um, I was actually craving McDonald's. Um, so I texted a girlfriend saying, can you bring me some large chips? I'm craving Maccas. Um, and literally just before she got to the hospital, I remember turning to my husband and just being, um, my, my head started spinning. Um, and I got like a blurry, blurry vision. Um, I honestly felt like I was having some sort of stroke. Um, so I obviously told the doctor and they raced me down to have, um, some scans and it all came back completely fine. But now looking back on that episode, I think that was the, the brain trigger where, Possibly that was the start of my postpartum psychosis journey. Okay. And how long were you in hospital then before you got sent home? So after the mini, I guess, mini stroke that I thought it was, I felt absolutely fine after once I come back from brain scans. Um, they were like, look, there's nothing wrong with your brain. Everything's fine. You know, it might have just been something weird happening, um, but no one could explain it. Um, and then day three, I think I was in there for like six days. You know, it was nine years ago, so... It was amazing. Small little country hospital. We both, we had a double bed. We had a kitchen. It was like staying in a hotel. Um, so back then it was very fortunate. You, you know, you could stay in hospitals for a lot longer. Um, so I waited for my milk to come in. 
Carl went home, you know, every now and then to walk the dog. Um, so I think we left on maybe day six um, from the hospital. Yeah. And everything during the birth was fine. Was it all pretty straightforward kind of birth? Your body was going through its normal recovery stage? Yeah. Yeah. Everything was, um, I mean, obviously I, at the time I really wanted an epidural and then it was too late, but apart from that, it was, um, birth was, was as good as it can be being, you know, birth for every woman. It's different, but for me, it was painful. It was long, but it was, you know, Jax was delivered at 7am in the morning and everything was great. Um, you know, recovery was fantastic. I did bleed for a little bit, but there was no tearing. There was no, everything was great in my mind. It was like, wow, I'm very, I mean, I was feeling very blessed to have had a, such an amazing pregnancy, such a good birth, nothing happened after. And then to be holding this beautiful baby boy in my arms, who was completely healthy and then, you know, latched onto the, the boobs straight away. It was just a dream come true for me. It was like, wow, this is, this is the perfect, perfect start to motherhood for me. So you were really ready to go home and go into that little baby bubble that we all go into, but your story started to change a little bit for you. What was sort of um, starting to happen for you over those first few weeks of being at home? So I guess when I took um, Jack's home, I I guess any of my friends would probably laugh. I'm, I'm quite a manic sort of person that, you know, from 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm up, I'm coffee, I'm doing washing, I'm, you know, putting makeup on. It's, um, it's not unusual for me to just be a, like a doer, you know, getting stuff done. So I'm a hairdresser by trade. So my mum had flown over. I was doing um, clients day sort of 14 postpartum. I was going Clancy's for lunch. Everyone was just like, wow, CJ is just absolutely nailing this motherhood, like whatever that means for anyone. But it was, yeah, I was just sort of doing everything. I guess for me, it was quite normal. And I totally did have that love bubble. I was like, I'm just in love with my new life. I was walking around the block every day. Um, and I thought every, everything was normal until years later that I could reflect on things. Um, and the first time, like my mum and I would be like, wow, you did some things that wasn't quite normal, you know? So I was doing a client at home. A mum had taken Jack's for a walk and she rang me and was like, the wheel's fallen off the pram. She was only just literally around the corner. And I absolutely lost it at her to the point where I was like screaming. My client was like, are you okay? I was like, the pram's fallen. You're going to kill my baby. What are you doing? Like absolutely screaming down the phone to my mum. And then sort of came out of it and was like, oh, it's actually okay. Like she's stopped someone, you know, someone had pulled over, helped her with the pram. And then just little things would happen. Like nighttime routine, I'd have like my banana and my muesli bar was all really sort of like in perfect line, my nappies, my wipes, everything had to be perfectly in line. Seven o'clock would come. I wouldn't stay up and watch TV. I would just go to bed with Jax and everything would have to be perfect. Um, and then a friend came over, she bought me some dinner um, and it was dark inside and the lights were on and the curtains were up. So obviously you can see your shadows in the garden. I remember looking at my friend saying, why can I see myself? Why can I see someone walking in the garden? Who is that? And she was like, that's you. And I was like, no, it's not me. I can see someone in the garden. There's someone in the garden. She was like, no, that's you and your reflection. And I was like, oh, I must be, I must be tired. But at that time it was so normal. It was like, oh, I must just be a bit sleep deprived. Um, and my girlfriend actually went home to her mom and said, you know, CJ had done this. And she was like, oh, she, she's clearly sleep deprived. So well done for taking over of dinner and 
you know, encouraging her to go to bed. Um, but little did I not know, I actually was not sleeping at all. So my husband, when he did come, obviously when he was home before he left to go back to work, I remember, I don't actually remember, but he said I was on my phone, like with, you know, the bright light, obviously that stimulation, which really we shouldn't be doing when we're breastfeeding. It's probably the worst thing we can do holding our phone. Um, and I remember Carl turned around to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm breastfeeding. What do you think I'm doing? And he said, no, Jax is in the, he's in the cot next year. So, but still at that time, I still didn't actually think anything was wrong. I was like, oh, oh, I don't even remember putting Jax back in his cot. Oh, well, you know, I better go back to sleep. Um, but little did I really know that it was starting to, I had no idea what was happening to me. Um, I had another friend come around once and back then it was like we had black carpets we had black we had the black quilts we had the black wall you know it was all kind of that really sort of black sort of theme with the you know the white pleather back then um and they came over and I'd had taped a white sheet to my wall and I had all different colored pillows all over my floor um and I remember my friend saying what what are you doing and I was like well the devil lives in my room so I'm just trying to make it you know a bit friendlier because it's really black in here but still not going, am I actually saying what I'm saying? Because now with my work supporting mums, if someone had said that, I'd be like, wow, that's a real, there's a real, real flag going there. It wasn't a sign back then because I guess no one really knew what was going on. It was just like, okay, well, let's just take that down and maybe we can just change your bedspread instead of actually taping sheets to the wall, you know. For you as the the person in it, you're, they often won't know what they're saying or what's going on. It sounds like at that part, at that time you were really falling into more of a manic state, weren't you, where you hadn't been sleeping. You um, Do we know, do you know like how many nights it had been since you'd actually had a sleep? So you weren't like in the normal case where people are sleep deprived because their baby's waking up and you're getting up and down throughout the night. You actually weren't sleeping, is that right? Well, um, that is, that is um, with postpartum psychosis, it is um, sleep deprivation. So I actually don't think I really slept from, like, from Jack's being born until the time that I actually went to the hospital and got diagnosed. Um, so, yeah, it was that manic. that And because I was so manic, that was what was keeping me awake, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it was um, definitely sleep deprivation. But I think from, like, day one, I didn't actually sleep. Because Carl said that quite a few times. He'd be like, you were up again and you weren't feeding what were you doing you know so but again didn't really probably wake up to me every night doing that you know so where was the first point when you actually ended up going to get help what was the um trigger for that and yeah what was sort of the next step so um we had a close friend that lived in Dunsborough um and we actually had Jack's booked in for a procedure when he was um about six weeks old. So we both went up to Perth and stayed in a hotel. And I remember just finding a hair in the sink in this really nice hotel. It was beautiful, but there was a little hair in the sink that obviously does happen. I just would probably just put it down the sink now, but I absolutely, again, lost it at the reception staff, screaming at, like screaming at everyone in the hotel. Um, and my friend at the time was just like, what? It's okay. It's just a hair, you know, like, what are you, what are you doing? And then on our drive home, um, after the procedure went really well, Jax was just the most incredible baby as well. Like he would sleep. And so there was nothing that really he was doing that was making me this way. You know, I wasn't anxious because of him. 
So I'm driving home and I just remember saying to her, I just feel really weird. Like I feel like I'm on this major buzz. Like I've had way too much coffee mixed with a bit of Red Bull. Like I just felt really weird. And I started to form like a bit of a metallic taste in my mouth, which I obviously that's not normal. Um, so we drove back home and I remember her taking me to the chemist in like the local chemist and sort of telling them my feelings. They were like, oh, maybe your blood sugar's low. Maybe you need to have some sugary lollies or whatever. You know, those little lollies you can get at the chemist. So I took a bag of those and I remember walking around Coles doing a food shop and it was almost like I was in someone else's body walking around. Like I was that high. I felt honestly, like when you have too much coffee, you're just like, you're trying to breathe. And it was like, I was almost just like, the, the things on the shelves were jumping out at me. It was like I was in a completely another world. It was just the most bizarre feeling I've ever had. Um, and again, no one could really explain it. So as I got home, I just started something. I think I just, I don't quite remember a lot of it, but I think I started saying some pretty weird stuff. And I remember my friend actually bringing Carl and just saying, you have to come home now. Like something's, something's not right. This isn't, it's more than more than anything because she's not actually she's not showing signs of depression because she's loving her baby and everything but she's actually like fully it was almost like I was totally wired um so I guess Carl came home and that was when my friend drove me to the doctors for the very first time and what happened at that doctor's meeting was um anything picked up then no, so we went to the doctors um, and it was, um, so because I'm writing a book at the moment, so I've got all my medical notes. So I'm going through sort of the process from, you know, from here to sort of the mother and baby unit. And it was diagnosed as sort of postpartum um, exhaustion. So you basically need to go home and sleep. So Carl was on his way home at the time. Um, and then it was a referral to, you know, the local mental health um, people, the child health nurses, um, all that kind of stuff. And then, so I was sent home then. So doctor, postnatal exhaustion, here's some sleeping tablets, go home, your husband's on his way home. Um, and yeah, that's, that was it. Postpartum exhaustion at that point. Yeah. And you said a second ago, you were really loving your baby. Um, there is an important distinguishing point there, isn't it, between um, somebody who's going through postpartum psychosis and maybe postpartum depression or other other forms of mental illness. Um, can you explain that for us? Yeah, so I guess this isn't um, something that I've sort of read or anything, but this is just in my actual lived experience of mental illness that a lot of, I do have another girl that has suffered postpartum psychosis and you're, you just don't want anyone to touch your baby. Like, it's just like, get away, stay away. Um, and it's that overwhelming sort of love for them, but it's like no one touches my baby. So the very first time I went into the mother and baby unit, I guess people couldn't really understand why I was there because I was like all lovey-dovey with my baby, you know. Um, and a lot of people with postpartum um, depression, and again, this isn't for everyone. This isn't me saying, you know, they, they don't love their babies, but a lot of people with postpartum depression do, I guess, struggle with the attachment and the loving of their baby. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, I didn't get that. That was only later on when I came out of my psychosis that I actually suddenly went, you know, a full, I guess, 360 of loving Jax to actually not even wanting him in my life anymore. So after you were sent home from your first doctor's meeting and um, you were meant to take some sleeping tablets and get some rest, um, 
that obviously wasn't doing the job. I wasn't treating the root cause of what was going on. What was, what was next? So I actually went home um, that day and we ended up in hospital that afternoon because my friend was like, no, this isn't okay. Cause I actually said, I'm not taking those sleeping tablets cause they're going to kill me. You know, like I'm not taking a tablet and I don't want to go to sleep in case I don't wake up all those. And I know so many people, oh, just go and take a sleeping tablet or take this medication, which is some people need it. But again, it's like mother's fear not being able to wake up to their children. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking a sleeping tablet. You know, like I, I need to look after my baby. I had the guilt of not waking up to him, but also obviously the psychosis as well. So I was starting to get that paranoia of what people were trying to give me. Um, so then she actually took me to the hospital that afternoon. Um, yeah, to the local hospital that afternoon. Was Carl back at this point or he was still, cause he was FIFO, wasn't he? Yeah, he was literally um, driving home as we were going to hospital. So I think he must have met us at the hospital like an hour after we got there. And I remember reading in your story, then you went to this hospital um, check-in and again, you were sent home, right? With What was the diagnosis at that point? So again, it was um, sort of postpartum exhaustion, possible anxiety, perfectionist mother needs to just chill, Husband needs to come home, needs to have another sleeping tablet. Um, Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So, again, we got discharged. Like, Carl literally turned up at the hospital um, and we got sent home again. Um, The other thing that I did read on my medical notes, um, and I couldn't sort of really understand why, but it was Axis 1 or Axis 2. So I Googled it. I was like, what does this mean? You know, because it was obviously a medical term. Um, And the first one was a personality disorder. And the second one was mental retardation, which is, that's actually what it says if you Google um, Axis 2. So I was like, wow, it's, you know, I don't think anyone really knew what was going on, but they, they sort of didn't think it could be anything to do with the baby, you know, like this lady's just had a baby. But Again, you know, I can go on about this forever, but it's about the stigma of not people not talking about this. So obviously the hospital had never really seen it. Um, so I think Carl was a little bit confused because I got sent home. She might have this, she might have that. But, you know, again, you need to actually take your wife home and let her sleep. You need to step up and let her sleep. So they were really trying to put it back on him. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. And what happened in the car ride on the way home? So we got home and I started feeling really funny again. You know, I had that real sort of manic feeling, the metallic taste still that had been with me for about two days. And he said, oh, look, I'll get some chocolate out of the cupboard because he knows I love chocolate. So I had some dairy milk on the um, on the couch and I literally went into a full-blown panic attack. So he had no idea what was going on. I was like on the floor fully, you know, couldn't breathe, nothing. So he straight away called an ambulance. Um, and luckily within moments they were there, but they couldn't understand what was going on either. Cause they were like, all oh, your obs are absolutely fine. You know, you're all good sort of thing. Um, but then they, uh, they said, we should take you to hospital. Cause obviously if you know, called an ambulance, we need to do the right thing, take you to hospital. But that was the moment when I actually remember being rolled out in the stretcher and I can remember that ambulance door doors opening and being rolled into the ambulance and looking up into the sky and actually thinking that that was it. I, that was, I was gone. Like I was actually going up into heaven. Um, so that was really scary. And then looking back at Jack's and Carl, and then actually it was almost like I was dying. Like I was gone. Like I was sort of like saying goodbye to them. And I was, that was it. I was, I was dead. Basically I was going. 
So you've had a GP, you've had two, two hospital visits. This would be the third hospital visit by this point. And again, cleared you because all your observations came back fine. And then you went home again. And this is when you said something quite profound. Yeah. So I went, so I got to the hospital and I remember seeing the triage sign as I'm walking in. And I thought at the, at the time, triage meant dead for dead people. I thought it was like the morgue. So I was, I remember seeing triage and going, oh my God, I've confirmed it. I'm like, you know, in the, in the dead bed area kind of thing. Sorry, that sounds awful. But you know, that's what I actually thought. That was my mind saying I'm in the dead bed area. Like, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the triage, the morgue place. So I remember just lying there and just, and then obviously I was then being sort of walked around the hospital and I'm like, oh, well, I'm like walking dead, you know? So I'd actually be saying to the nurses, I can feel, I can't feel my pulse. And I remember going into the hospital and looking in one of the mirrors and all I could see was this like gray dead person. Like I was actually dead. I can't even begin to inscribe what, what I felt at the time. And the nurses bless them. They're all like, no, you're not dead. We can feel a pulse. Um, you know, it's all good. And I remember having an, um, another doctor come in and one of the nurses who um, is, a, is actually a friend um, from all of that was like, no, I'm, we can't send her home again. Like there's definitely something more, you know, going on. And I remember the doctor sort of looking at her and saying, you know, don't, I'm the doctor, you're the nurse, so I, I'll kind of deal with this. Um, and I remember looking at her just going, oh, my gosh, I just want to give you the biggest hug because she was sort of my safe. I felt like I was really safe with her, whereas all the other people I felt like, because of my psychosis, I felt like they were all out to get me and they were all wanting to give me tablets to kill me and all that. Um, so then it was the discharge was CJ um, is is actually in hospital again with, like, the handwritten note was like capital letters underlined. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> and so we, my, I think my husband at that point was just like, really? I can't believe we're getting in the car and going home again for like the third time. So, and we had Jacks in the car. So, you know, this is like the third time back and forth with this, you know, this seven-week-old baby. And I remember looking at Carl and saying, it's okay. I know no one believes I'm dead and that's fine, but I've got the funeral playlist. We'll go through it when I get home. And I've already chosen the clothes for you, which I hadn't. That was my psychotic brain telling me that I had. Um, and I know that you're going to be okay living as a single dad and you've got this kind of thing. And I just sort of sat back and Carl looked at me and I was kind of like, this is what's happening. And I think that's when Carl went, you know what? This is actually not okay. Like you're talking about death. This is like way more than just having a bit of sleep deprivation. So it was him that actually went back um, and then obviously represented again for the fourth time. And that's when it said again, CJ's come back again. You know, we're just going to board for her and the baby in our borders. And we're actually going to obviously do a bit of sleep management at the hospital. Um, it was still no psychotic, um, you know, she's not psychotic. She's not, um, you know, it's still sort of that postpartum exhaustion. Um, and then obviously they had to get the, um, the mental health psych psychiatrist to come in. So was that the first time? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's hard because, um, you know, a lot of people see so have the PLOs, obviously the site liaison nurses. Um, but at the time they just kept thinking it was, postpartum exhaustion so I guess why would they then call in the psych the local psychiatrist when they just that's actually what they believed you know um 
So, yeah, the fourth time I eventually saw the psychiatrist. And so what happened, um, I don't know if you remember if you've seen your notes, but what happened then for them to finally um, see that it was something more? Did you um, not sleep again? They weren't able to control your <laughs> your lack of sleep or what, what happened? So I think I remember the first, the first notes, even after talking to him for a little bit, was still like, you know, we need to, like, we can't really have them here. She's sleep deprived, blah, 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 sort of thing. And then I think I just ended up having a conversation with him about, oh, it was just so many, so many random things. And then um, saying that my husband wasn't my, the father of my child and that my brother-in-law was. So eventually when I'm reading my medical notes and I see, I think now she has postpartum psychosis. I was just like, yes, finally, finally, you know, like I have just been showing so many signs like that I'm completely not okay. I'm completely psychotic here and manic. Um, But of course, you know, they hadn't um, later on when I spoke to, um, you know, people that are involved in my journey because I ended up working in in, in that kind of field. It was like no one had ever, ever, ever seen seen this kind of um, illness come through the hospital, you know, for like 30 plus years and yours was extreme. Um, But yeah, it was interesting that it took that long to actually go, okay, this, this could be an illness related to having a baby, you know? And so at that point, then you were sent to Perth to the mother and baby unit. Is that right? No. So um, the mother and baby unit, nine years ago, only had eight beds in Subiaco. Um, they've now got 16, so they've got the Fiona Stanley one. So there was no beds for me at all. Like, they didn't have any beds. Um, but they knew it was obviously um, really serious. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't have the staff to, because um, I had to be on full suicide, um, like a full watch. They couldn't, I couldn't be left alone with Jacks at any point. I was unfit. Well, that's sort of what my notes was. I was an unfit mum to look after my kid because of obviously what I was going through. So I had to, um, at the time, my husband and my mum, because she'd obviously flown in, had to do like a full roster, like someone from my family or my friends or anyone in my life had to come in, which was really full on for them as well, because they weren't trained in anything. You know, they weren't psych, the psychiatrists or anyone that ever worked in mental health before. So these are my beautiful friends who have come into the hospital and I'm just talking about being a backpacker and killing my baby and taking my baby off Carl. I thought Carl and one of the nurses were together and I'd stolen the baby and, you know, thought I was in prison at one point. So my beautiful friends and family had to do that for me every day. And then I wasn't able to really breastfeed because I was on high medication. So they had to sort of put me to sleep slyly and then sort of take Jax away to bottle feed him. But if I'd known I was not feeding him, it would have, so it was, it was a really scary, I think I was in Bustleton for about a week and a half and it was really full on for them because it, you know, you're not allowed like in a normal general ward, you can't have someone as, as unwell as I was in the hospital. So it was a really, um, I guess it was a long time for, and my dad was, my dad was like, you know, we'll pay for her to go to Hollywood. We'll get, we'll do anything for her to be, to go private and to go now. And the doctor, the psych was like, she cannot go without her baby. Like that will be the end of her if she leaves without Jack's by her side. Like, so we're just going to have to wait until they have a bed. So I think it was about eight days. I had tried to escape from the hospital. Um, once I remember climbing over the fence with Jack's like strapped to my back, they brought my dog in to try and like trigger my memory that Carl was my partner. 
Um, I accused one of the nurses, one of the male nurses of actually, um, you know, doing something to me that wasn't appropriate, which obviously wasn't true either. Um, and I still remember that day when I said that, cause I went into the shower and I was just like feeling like I'd been like touched by someone that shouldn't have done it. It was just, it was just the weirdest time and the most scariest time of my life. Um, and then obviously the mother and baby unit rang and said, she's got a bed. So it was like straight in ambulance and get her up there. You know, she needs to get there. And Carl and Jax were in the car behind me. Um, and I think they gave me about three sleeping tablets and I did not fall asleep. I was just like this the whole way. Like they were like, I can't even believe this girl is still awake. I was just like staring at Jax and Carl the whole ride to the hospital. Cause I was just paranoid that I was being taken away. And it was that bond you were having with Jax, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was just like, no one can take this little person away from me because I felt like that was the only thing I had that was in my control. He was mine, you know, whereas every, my whole world around me was falling falling down. Um, and I remember going in the hospital and seeing um, the Hollywood clinic sign and thinking, oh, great, I'm now being sold as a sex slave on the black market and Carl's, Carl's in on this, you know. Um, so yeah, the ride to the hospital would have been very interesting for everyone that was in the ambulance, like, cause I just would not sleep at all. I, I know like hearing for some people, hearing these things of I'm being sold as a sex slave, um, you know, they're out to get me all this, st- all these things that you were saying, some people might laugh it off or, um, and even I'm sure for you now, who's gone through it and dealt with it all, um, you can laugh about it. And it's your story, so you can do what you want with it. <laughs> um, but that must have been absolutely terrifying when you're in it because that's that's your reality when you're in that moment. That must have been absolutely terrifying for you. Oh, it was awful. I, I even remember, like, being in the hospital um, uh, and a couple of people had tattoos, you know, like, I've got tattoos. And I actually thought they were all bikies and they were all you know, rallying together to, like, take me away. And then when I got to the mother and baby unit, it was – like the timing could have not been any more impeccable. Like I was just about to walk into the mother and baby unit and I'm like, I don't even know if I want to go in here. And about 10 guys on motorbikes rode past and I was like, oh, great. So I literally run into the mother and baby unit trying to get away from this group of guys that were probably just on a Sunday afternoon bike ride. And I actually thought they were the, so it's, yeah, it's so bizarre when you're in that psychosis, like psychotic, your brain's like that because you connect I was like, how is my brain even connecting that together? It's it's more like you are psychotic, but your brain makes so much sense and it is so real at the time. Um, it was, yeah, as you said, it was my reality and it was so harrowing at the time. It was really scary. How long were you in the mother and baby unit and how did the treatment go from there, from that point until you got home again? So I, when I arrived at the mother and baby unit, they had um, a family meeting with my mom and Carl and they said, look, she's that far sort of, I guess, gone that if she doesn't react to these tablets, she may, she may end up in Greylands for the rest of her life. So it was a really, it was really full on. Um, and I, so I started on like an antipsychotic, which actually saved my life because it got me out of the psychosis. But it was very slow. Um, I was in the mother and baby unit for about two and a half weeks. Um, and I just, I couldn't watch the TV. I was on quite a tight sort of like sleeping routine. So Jax would go to the nursery, which I was okay about actually. I think once I was there and the tablets started working, I started slowly coming out of um, 
the psychosis, the TV. Whenever I'd watch the TV, I thought that I was in the TV. When I used to go to the psych, the psychiatrist, like group chats, every time she'd talk about something, I thought they were all talking about me. So it was, it was kind of a slow, um, I guess, two and a half to three weeks. And then I did get discharged because when you're up in Perth, they like you to go home for a bit of a weekend trial because obviously you're like three hours away. So it's not like you can just go home 10 minutes down the road. So I remember going home and actually remember lying to the psychiatrist saying I'm actually okay. And I totally wasn't. I still was, I still, I guess, was having mini psych, like mini psychotic thoughts. And my mum knew I was lying, but she couldn't say that. Um, so we went home and my brother-in-law and my, my husband were watching a, a movie called abduction, you know, and the psychiatrist later were like, why were you watching that movie when CJ came home, you know? Um, and yeah, I just took off. I was like, that's, they're coming to abduct me, my brother and my husband. And so I just took off down the road. Um, and luckily my dad found me. I think I was like two streets away with Jack's like just frantically walking. So I did go back to the mother and baby unit for another week. And then we transitioned to a house in Subiaco for another week. Um, so me and my mom actually um, rented a house there. Um, and then one day I just remember saying, I'm going to go home. I'm ready to go home. I don't want to be up in Perth anymore. I've been here for nearly four weeks. Um, so we got cleared to go home. And that's when, I guess, the depression and the perinatal anxiety really started to hit. Yeah, so now you've had a complete switch. Um, so you've gone from your manic state to starting to now drop into a more depressive state. Um, how did you manage in such a small town, your hometown is quite small. Everybody sort of knows everyone, especially back then it's even smaller. Um, was that all coming into play with the anxiety and the depression or, um, you know, going back into the shops and stuff and seeing people? How, how did that all come into play? Um, I actually didn't tell anybody. So, um, one of my best friends, um, I just, we actually met in the hospital and we're still like the best of friends and she obviously knew what was happening. So she was kind of my safe, safe sort of place. I used to go around to hers quite a bit after I got home. Um, but everyone else, I, even when I joined the mother's group, I just pretended that I was okay. Like, why would I have done that? I don't know. And I just, I guess I just put that front on. I didn't want anyone to know, but I was like really struggling hard, like in bed every day. I would just put Jack's in the playpen and he would cry. And I just sort of like be that with my cushion and I'd go out and give him a little bit of a cracker. And then I'd go back to bed. Um, going into Coles, mum was here. She, she stayed with me till Jack's was nine months, nine months old. So I really started to get, I guess, quite, um, reliant on her like it was it was almost like a different world like I I didn't really do anything for Jacks myself like if we went to the shops mum would go or I would go with her um so yeah it wasn't I didn't really have a normal like coming home really because it I just had my mum living with me for nine months and then mum sort of had to go home and then um they were like your mum needs to move out you can't rely on her forever you know like she, you need to start actually doing things for yourself, which was so, so true. But I actually hadn't really done anything for Jax. Like I wasn't actually his mum for the first nine months. I mean, my mum always says you were, you did so much for him. But for me, my, when my mum moved, so she actually moved next door because the people next door rented the house to us. Um, and it was awful. 
I couldn't do anything myself. I was just this blubbering mess. Um, and I'd get to like 7.30 in the morning. I'd be like, mom, are you awake? And she wouldn't reply on purpose till 10 o'clock because that's what everyone I told her to do. Like, don't reply to your daughter till at least 10 o'clock because she needs to start building up that capacity to, you know, I guess live a, a, a normal life. But it was really tough. I used to make myself go for walks around the block um, and I'd be hating it. And I would see people and I'd be like, oh, hi, how are you going? Yeah, I'm great. Everything's wonderful, you know. I'd be posting photos on Instagram that I, I now look back and just go, oh, my gosh, that was just such a – that was my social life. That was my um, social media life, whereas behind it all, it was just completely – so. I guess for me, it was like I was putting this fake world up on to Instagram. So when, if, when my story did come out eventually, everyone was like, I had no idea. But of course they would have had no idea because I was just living this fake life on social media, you know. And I don't quite know why I did that. But I guess for me, it just made me feel better. Like I'm having a great time when actually I'm not, you know. And your depression was so bad that you actually – did try to take your own life. Is that right at some point? Oh yeah. 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 Um, I think I tried to, oh, maybe three times. So the first time I just, I just didn't want to be, I actually didn't want to be around. Like every time I go to bed, I'd be anxious about waking up the next day. And then every time I'd wake up, I'd be anxious about the day ahead. And it was just this like continuous cycle and every day I had suicidal ideation where I just be like I don't want to be here Jax is way better off without me like my husband's way better off without me I'm a burden to the world I'm just you know I'm, I'm much better off not being here so um I did I mean I think the doctor gave me like 70 tablets you know like an anti-anxiety tablet and I just pretty much drank three quarters of the bottle and just sort of got in the car and drove and I did ring my mum and just sort of she knew that something was wrong because she had actually flown home at this point and was like, what do you mean? And so she rang Carl. And as I was going through the roundabout, Carl actually came. It was like it was the timing was, again, like meant to happen. And so Carl, um, he pulled, like literally took me off the road and was like, and he was so angry at me. I remember him just being so angry. And it was like, I wasn't angry because I don't love you, but I was just angry because I'm like, really? Like, this is what you want to do. But I guess when you're, you know, a lot of people say suicide is so selfish, but unless you've actually been in that, in that mindset, it's actually not, you don't actually think about anyone. I, do, I wasn't thinking about Carl being, having to bury him and his son, uh, having to bury me and his son, you know, like you just, you just don't think about it. You just want the pain to end. You know, you just want the pain to end. So that was that time. And obviously then I had to go back into hospital. Um, and then again, I, I tried to, I think I cut myself down the side of the house and it went a bit deep. But again, the the health record notes were kind of like, oh, again, she's tried to do it again. I was like, oh, no, I'm not trying. I'm not like, you know, this is just my reality and I don't, and I don't want to be around anymore. And there was just not really... Um, I guess, much community support back then. So I was just over, like, I guess for me, it was like, I'm, it was like, oh, she's just seeking attention. And it's like, it wasn't seeking attention. There's a difference between seeking attention, and actually crying for help. Like I was actually crying for some help. I wasn't going, oh, look at me. I'm trying to kill myself. I was actually crying for someone to go, someone to say, I get it. 
and just feel hurt, you know, because I just did not feel like anyone was listening. I was like this just screaming person, like someone just listen to me and what I'm going through, you know. I'm so sorry to hear that that is, that has happened to you. That was your experience. It's just horrible. And we will get to a, a positive out of all this for the listeners because you now, the path that you're in is is just absolutely amazing. And the, the change that you're making for your community is just, uh, uh, it's amazing. It really is. But before we get there, you did get out of this depressive state. Um, you were able to get well again. So how old was Jax when things just changed again for you? Oh, it was, I think Jax was about 18 months old. So it was, well, when Jax was 14, month old, 14 months old, I just used to go around the block. And two doors down is a beautiful girl um, who's now one of my best friends. Um, and she used to see the ambulances coming, you know, coming by. And, and she actually walked down the end of the driveway when I was walking Jax and said, oh, I've got a friend over having a cup of tea. Do you want to come in? And I was like, oh, like, no, no way. Like, sort of ran home, ran Carl and was like, oh, you know, she's invited me over to have a cup of tea. He was like, you've got to do it. You need to go and start because we all know that community support and when you feel the love and you are surrounding yourselves with other mums, which I didn't really think was, that was the turning point. And then obviously my girlfriend that I spoke about before, I used to hang out with her all the time. But for me, I guess it was when Jax was at that age where he was a little bit more independent. Um, you know, he could start talking um that was when I guess I started building a bit more of my mother tribe you know I'd met my beautiful friend through um when we had babies together and then I met my neighbor and then I met all those girls and it just slowly started um getting better and it's funny because Carl Carl laughs he said no it was when you had your seizure that it all sort of like your brain almost went back to normal because I um, just decided I wanted to come off all my medication and so I just cold turkey, which I don't obviously recommend to anybody. Um, so Carl thought I was getting better and the next minute I'm on the floor having a seizure. Because I say to Carl, when was the moment where I was actually a lot better? And he said, I think it was after the seizure. It was like your brain just went, Zzz. you had that seizure and then you were all good again. But it was obviously when I started meeting um, more of a more of a tribe, I think, for me. And Jack's just being a bit more independent. Like, I just don't – I don't do newborns at all. Like, I love newborn babies if they're someone else's. But for me, I'm not going to put a blanket over it. I'm not going – I just can't do newborns. Like, give me a room full of toddlers any day. But newborn babies with the routine and it, it's just not, not for me, I don't think. But maybe it would have been if I hadn't had the psychosis. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's good that you're honest about it um, because, yeah, there, there's a pressure as well that we're meant to love that newborn stage and that every mum will love that newborn stage and just stay in this big happy bubble. And it is a very, very challenging time. Um, and, yes, it's not necessarily loved um, by all. And even someone who does like it, they might not love it. And they're probably I'd be very surprised if, to find a woman who loved every moment <laughs> of that newborn stage because that is, yeah. It's hard. Um, so you and your uh, your husband now, you ended up getting married in this um, once you started to feel better again. Oh, that was amazing! It was a really um, it was just a big party basically. But I think at the end of the year, um, he was like, "We need to we need to finish this year on a high and and have something positive for this year." And so we we did get um, engaged, and then. 
we got married in 2016 and it was just this like big party. And I remember my dad, he did a speech and he was just like, I don't know what we do without Carl. Like a lot of men would have just like, catch ya, see you later. This is way too much. So it was just a beautiful celebration of all the friends that had really helped us, I guess, along the way. Um, you know, and I was so happy at that point. I was back to me. I was back to that bubbly, fun, you know, girl that I remember. And I didn't ever think that she would ever come back. I thought that I was just a different person forever. So it was a real celebration of, um, yeah, being good again and being happy and actually, you know, loving my husband and my son, which was amazing. Yeah. And then you got your, the baby feels back and you wanted to try for number two. Oh, yes. (laughs) How did that conversation go with Carl? Yeah, I never, I never wanted another baby. I was like, I'm just, I'm going to be a mum, you know, a single, like obviously with a single child. And it's crazy because I know I would just always get, oh, why have you only got one child? And I guess we live in such a society where if you only have one, something must have happened. Something must have gone wrong. Like, and why? I still don't get that because I used to get it all the time. Like, are you not going to have another baby? Did you lose any children? Like, And I'm like, it's really no one's business if someone just wants to have the one baby. But I do remember and I do, I do get it now when women say, you'll know when you know if it's your last baby. And so I guess a few months after the wedding, I just turned around to Carl and I can so clearly remember the conversation. I'm pretty sure he nearly fell off his chair and his jaw dropped. He was like, you want another baby? do you think we should just go on a holiday or, you know, like talk about it? And I just remember ringing my mom and she said she actually rang Carl because they had formed the most amazing bond when all this sort of stuff happened. And she said, unfortunately, Carl, when women want another child and if they're lucky to then fall pregnant again, you're not going to be able to switch that off. Like it's, it's there. Um, so yeah, that was when, um, yeah, I decided I wanted to have another baby. I was like, we're doing it. We're going to have another one. And so did you do some preparation this time? Were you nervous um, at all uh, that you uh, you might get um, the psychosis back or um, depression? Yeah, so I was incredibly nervous, you know. Um, it had been three and a bit years, you know, like Jax was three at the time. So some of the memories had started to fade, but there was definitely no way I was just going to fall pregnant, you know, like, I couldn't, I couldn't do that to myself second time around. So we went and saw the sites up in Perth, the team that had looked after me up there. And he actually laughed. He's such an interesting character. I love the psych up there. He's just really interesting. And he was like, oh, you can have another baby. You could have birthed in the bush, but you can totally have another baby. But we don't feel com- comfortable you living where you live because it's a bit rural. And we've got the mother and baby unit here. And we want really to set you up for, you know, having a second baby. So he said, you can either do, um, sort of medication once the baby hits, you know, 38 weeks, or you can just see how it goes. And I remember looking at his face and being like, I'm not just seeing how it goes. I'm, I'll be doing the medication. So that was the plan. So one of the, my beautiful team down here, like, you know, as much as some of the hospital didn't quite You know, I had a really amazing doctor down here who um, sort of talked to the guys up in Perth because when it got close, they were like, she needs to come up once a week. And it just wasn't doable with, you know, a toddler and a wife or husband. So she was great with all that kind of stuff. And as I said, I didn't really have any mental health. They they said you could you could get postpartum psychosis um, while you're pregnant, but 
I said, don't worry, I'll be, I'll be screaming from the rooftops if anything feels weird because I'm not going through that again. Um, so luckily my pregnancy was really good the second time. Again, it was really amazing, you know. Um, and my, obviously my toddler was a little bit older, so he wasn't, you know, that full like 18 month old baby that I really had to sort of look after. Um, and then we moved to Perth. I was very fortunate that my dad was able to rent us a house for eight weeks in Perth. And so we moved to Perth for, um, I think it was when, yeah, 38, 38 weeks. I moved to Perth. Um, and then we had the baby up in Perth. You said if you started to get those symptoms again, you would have been screaming from the rooftops. Do you think you would have been more, um, not that you wouldn't be in tune with it, but do you think you would have spoken up or do you find that it's more something for the team around you to be looking out for? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, but I do remember, and it's funny you say this, but I do remember once I was going to Kmart, pregnant, Jax was at daycare, I think. And I had the same thing. I had the same thing happen. I was literally driving just out of um, where I live and I, some, I got blurry vision and I had to pull the car over and I rang my girlfriend and I said, you need to take me to the hospital ASAP. I actually think I'm getting psychosis. And so she literally, you know, came straight from work, got me in the car and I said, I got to the hospital and they're like, what's your name? And I'm like, I don't actually know. I could not remember my name at all. And they were like, so what's your phone number? I'm like, I don't know. Can't remember at all. And I remember my girlfriend just saying, oh my gosh, like, I'm going to have to text Carl what's happening. And it ended up being a migraine, which I've never, ever, ever had a migraine. The doctor was like, you're absolutely fine. You've got a migraine. Go home and, you know, take the Nurofen. And I literally woke up five hours later, a different person. I was like, oh, wow, I did have a migraine. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes it just depends. Um, I think with having the tablets once I, you know, in my pregnancy, that would have stopped any psychosis sort of coming after um, Colin was born, although they did say it could have come back even with um, tablets. They might have just had to increase the dose. Um, but it was, it was so scary. There's no way, unless it, was a, unless it was something that I didn't recognize was happening compared to the last time. But I'm, I'm really, I was really confident in myself and others around me that if I had said, oh, there's a devil in my room or this something, this has happened. I'm pretty sure everyone around me would have just been like, okay, alarm bells. And the team down South, like all my doctors um, would constantly see me. It's a, it's a small town. Like, how are you feeling? What's going on? You know? So they were all, I think from the first time being so horrific, I think they were all really um, trying to support me the best way they could. Yeah. So how did you go with him? Did um, the depression start to creep back in once he was born? Yes. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, and again, no one really knew, but I didn't have a very fun time again for probably 15 months. So birth was okay. Birth was good again. Um, we lived up in Perth for eight weeks, which was great. But at the same time, it was weird because obviously you're, le you're leaving your hometown and you I did actually go and stay in the mother and baby unit for two weeks because um, they didn't want me to do any night feeds. So that was kind of good, but it was weird at the same time because I was well. And so I was being surrounded by, you know, women with sort of perinatal mental health. But it was almost a bit of closure for me because I'd seen nurses that I thought were witches when I was in there the first time. So I was like, oh, wow, you're actually not a witch. Um, 
But then I came home and I remember my friend's parents being here and they were still here when I got home. And I remember just walking into the house with Cohen and Jackson, just being like, again, just had that really manic kind of like spaced out. And I think my girlfriend sort of realized she could just, she could just judge what was happening on my face. And she was like, okay, everybody, let's get out of here, you know? Um, but I guess every time I did something with Cohen or every time he smiled or giggled for the first time or, you know, I would constantly look at Jax and just feel the overwhelming guilt about how I was like, oh, I don't even care that he's smiling. I don't even care that he's crawling. Like, I don't even want him, you know. So, but it was interesting because mum came over and she was just like, you're not depressed because I feel your future think your future talking about things, you know, like your holiday and all that. I was planning a retreat later on and my birthday with some friends down south. And so I went to see the doctor again and without even doing any blood tests or anything, they were like, oh, you've got postnatal depression because it's all over your notes. So here's a script for um, antidepressants. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll start, you know, start a course of antidepressants. And I'd actually seen a naturopath the first time with Jax and he really helped me after sort of get out of, you know, transitioning from medication and just filling me with goodness that I didn't really know it sort of existed. Um, and so he said, make sure you come and see me when Cohen's born so I can help you. Like I can, you know, if they give you the medication, which I definitely said I was going to, that I can sort of counteract different, you know, when you do come out or your gut health, because obviously your gut health is so important for your mind as well. Um, and about a week, I know antidepressants do take a while to sort of kick in, like maybe six to eight weeks, but about two weeks later, mum was like, I, I'm just thinking outside the box. I don't think you're depressed. Like, I really don't think you're depressed. I think you've got, I had major perinatal anxiety, but that's like a whole new story. Um, so I went and saw my naturopath and he was like, why didn't you come and see me earlier? And he did a simple iron test and he was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe you have been even getting out of bed. Your iron levels are so low. Um, so I got really angry at that point. So I was like, if the doctor, I think it was ages ago, if the doctor had actually done levels and maybe put me on a good iron supplement. I don't know whether I would have had that experience the second time round. And I saw in my health notes the other day that they'd actually flagged that I was extremely low in iron. As soon as Colm was born, they did a test and no one actually spoke to me about it. So it was the lack of communication that led me to, um, and it still haunts me today. Like I, I, would, I don't think I'll ever get over what happened to me, but I, I, I get through it, you know, but it still annoys me because I'm just like, maybe my second time around would have been so different. And I remember calling them my happy pill. Oh, I'm taking my iron supplement, my happy pill. <laughs> I, uh, I hope things are starting to get better in, um, the care now of women after giving birth. And I think we are um, making steps forward with that. Um, but when there's so many people in a system, people often get missed, like what happened with you that was flagged and it was missed. So um, this is a really good point for women to advocate for themselves and to always follow up with their own health. So going and doing a checkup with your GP and if they haven't ordered bloods, get them done and just see where all your base 
um, blood results are sitting like your iron and all of that. Just make sure that everything is in tip top shape so that you can be, um, in the most optimal shape that you can be in. Um, so you eventually, um, started to get out of, um, start to get better again with, um, the second one. And it sounds like this has really set you on a new pathway, this whole experience of yours, um, to where you are now, you, um, do a lot of work for a local group called Radiance. So can you chat to us about um, what you're doing now, but also what are some of those things that women can do to um, look out for themselves in those early, um, that first year or the first thousand days? Um, so once I'd sort of, um, I guess, started to feel better, um, I, I just used to constantly Google like postpartum depression help support, you know, like in the area and there was nothing. And, um, for me, it was just having to sort of teach myself the skills and all that kind of stuff to get through. Um, and so I held a big fundraiser, a clothes swap, um, in the local area and I raised $15,000. Um, and I went into a local mental health charity in Bustleton and I just said, I would love this to go to mums, mums and babies. And they, I remember at the time saying, well, we don't really have anything for mums and babies, but we'll, you know, we'll do something with it. And then obviously I then went down into the path of falling pregnant and I just left the 15,000. Little did I know that a beautiful lady called Anne, who's actually um, my manager at Radiance, um, she used the $15,000 and behind the scenes for a whole year, she was creating Radiance with the funding that I had, um, had given and I remember being up in Perth pregnant with Cohen and she and another lady kept sort of emailing me like, this is what you've done, like with the money. And I was just like, not in the, not in the headspace and just kind of ignored the emails. I was like, look, I'm just, I don't know kind of who you are. Blah, blah, blah. And then I got invited to one of the big pram walks. And that was when I sort of went, oh, wow, like this is huge for the Southwest. And that was like five years ago in 2017. So for me, um, I'm now working in that space. So every Thursday in um, my local area, I facilitate a mother's group for women with um, postnatal or perinatal mental health and emotional support in those first sort of um, postpartum period. Um, and I'm finding a lot of women like I didn't I didn't want to be fixed back then. I didn't want to be you know, there was so much of that trying to fix me, like here's, you know, pills, which sometimes medication is so needed, you know, but there was never any, um, I guess, support in just being heard. So I guess with Radiance, it's so awesome because women can just rock up with their babies and just be in any state they want to be, you know, no, no makeup. They just want to be heard. They don't want to be, what can we do to fix you? It's, they just want to be heard and it's a peer led group. So if we do feel like they need to be, I guess, referred on to someone else, there's so many amazing um, clinicians in the area. We do do that sort of referral pathway. Um, so I do that every Thursday, but I've also um, been doing, because um, a lot, some women who get perinatal mental health, they can't even leave the house, let alone get in the car and come to a group with, you know, other women in the room. So I've just started my um, training um, to be a postpartum doula. Um, so just really teaching women to slow down in those early days, you know, like slow down, try and, you know, get the sleep that you can. Don't put too much pressure on yourselves by going out 
to show the baby to the world, you know, keep your door closed, um, accept the help when it's there. Um, because it just would make so, it would have made so much difference to so many women's experiences with that first thousand days. I think we, we, we have, we're pregnant for nine months and then we have the baby and then we're just expected to within a week go out and show the baby. And it's like, for me, it's like slowing, slowing down, you know, and actually just acknowledging the fact that you have just had a baby and it has taken nine months to grow. So you almost need that time to allow you as a, as a mum to, you know, to, to step into motherhood. And I think for me, it's just teaching women to be really kind on themselves and gentle and yeah, all that kind of stuff, I guess. The first time of, um, becoming a mum, the first time of um, having a baby and becoming mum is all new, obviously a whole new experience and all new feelings and um, that you, you're not sure what to think or feel or how it's meant to be until you're actually in the situation. And so I can understand how um, the first time around for you, you, it's also would have been very hard because you didn't know what to expect. What can you suggest to other women to um, help themselves be in tune for the first time, what to be in tune to looking after their mental health? What are some tips and things that they should do? So the only thing I can say is just trust your intuition. Like this, we're, we're, I guess we're in this world now where there's so, there's so much informa- information overload. It's just crazy. And nowadays women are relying on their phones to tell them what to do and books to tell them what to do. And, child health nurses to tell them what to do. And that's amazing. Like there are some really amazing information out there, but I think we're forgetting that we are actually on this world to have children. We are actually more than capable to do this. So for me, it's just empowering the mums to actually go, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what, this is what is good for me. And just listening to that and tuning into what you think, um, as a mum. but also the second thing I guess for me is just communicating like, communicating if you are feeling um, like the baby blues is affecting you in a way that it's going too far or you're crying all the time or, you know, there's, I often hear it so much, oh, I've been told I need to start sleep training or I've been told to do this or I've been told that co-sleeping isn't good enough or I've been told that breast is best and I just want to grab women and just be like, what do you want to do? Because if you're not going to be happy in what you want to do, then you're not going to be okay. As a, and then you're not going to be able to parent your beautiful baby. And for me, you know, all the time in my health record notes, it's like, I'm a burden. I don't want to upset people. I just want to do what people are telling me to do. And for me, if I can just give anyone advice, it's just to slow down and do what you want to do. And if you are doing something that is not working and it's affecting you in, you know, like it's affecting your mental health, then reach out and get the support that you need to maybe change that, you know, um, don't be too hard on yourself when things are starting to affect your mental health. Um, but yeah, I think just trusting your intuition and just really communicating and letting people know, because if we all start talking about the way we're feeling and being honest about it, then the more the world is going to be aware of what actually can happen. And it's actually okay to admit that you're not okay. Like I remember, not being able to talk because I'd be worried that my baby would sort of get taken away from me. And it's not that, you know, like we all need to talk about how we're feeling to then get the right supports in place, whether that be clinical, non-clinical, 
or a bit of both together. We just need to learn to communicate and just be upfront with how we're feeling. Yeah. I think when somebody is um, so unwell, it can be really hard to reach out. Um, actually, it can be hard for all any woman really to ask for help, um, but particularly when you are in um, an unwell state. So what are some ways that they can... Um, because obviously it's, you can't always just get up out of bed and go and sit with a group. Um, we, we have mother's groups, but they're not always achievable to get there. So what are some other things that these women could do to get help? So there's actually quite a few, um, a few new things that are in the area. So we obviously do have Radiance. So that's actually, you can self-refer yourself to Radiance. So um, it's, I've had quite a lot of women open up to me and say, I need some help. Um, and then we've also got, um, you know, this referral pathways, a lot of the child health nurses and doctors know about radiance in the area now. So, um, a lot of the midwives at the hospitals know, cause I've been advocating and, you know, spreading the news far and wide. Um, but there's also been a new, um, helpline that's been funded by the mental health commission called for when, I don't know whether you've ever heard about it, Alex, but so it's, it's, uh, mental health specific line for perinatal mental health. So I actually called it myself the other day because I was like, I'm going to just see, you know, what they're doing. And so it's like a triage service. So they did know about Radiance, which is really awesome. Um, so you ring the number, they've got like an Instagram page as well. So you can go onto there, but you've also got, um, different, uh, like you've also got for the dads as well. You've got like SMS for dads, which is a really amazing service. Um, for dads, because obviously Carl had no kind of support. Um, but with regards to when you're really, really unwell, I think you're not really going to reach out to Radiance. You know, I think the helplines are going to be where you go to first. So you do have quite a few helplines um, around there, you know. Um, you've got like breastfeeding helplines. I've got the thing up. You've got Nagala. Um, Panda's another really good one. Um that's been around for a while. And you've also got the Gidget Foundation that do um, the Start Talking, which you can utilize for um, free if you've got a mental health plan. Um, and they do all kinds of support for mental health um, and different you know, areas of um, motherhood as well. So there is quite a few, but as I said, it is hard if you've gone and kind of reached that stage where you've kind of gone over the crisis point and you kind of, you kind of want everyone else to sort of do the rallying for you. So it is to just make people aware that there are different um, support networks out there at the moment for you. Um, and especially Radiance being the main one for perinatal mental health down here. That's fantastic. We'll add links to all of it in the show notes as well. So people can find all of those um, resources. And we're also really excited because we're going to be talking to Anne next week as well. So she'll be on the show to chat a little bit more about Radiance and that other side. So this is um, a good sort of two-part series, really. Uh, if anybody wants to follow you and your journey, um, where could they find you? So um, I, I've just started a new business page called um, Mama Mind Nurture. Um, and my story is actually in my bio there. Um, and then obviously also there is Radiance as well. So they've got an Instagram page as well. Beautiful. Thank you for chatting with us today. It has, um, it's just been great. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. And especially because you're so open about your story, it's um 
it's just good to have it all laid out there so that it bre- it's breaking down barriers. If people are feeling nervous about talking about how they're really feeling, it's um, it, it's surely going to be helpful for them to hear somebody else be so open about it because it's only once we start to voice it that we can then move forward and um, get help. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co.